Hey there, welcome to another episode of Close to the Vest. My name is Arthur Ettinger, where we talk everything and ev- anything and everything, excuse me, uh, relationships, divorce, so forth. Um, I am super jazzed and excited about this episode. This is going to be high intensity. We are talking transformation because that's what relationships are. Uh, finding freedom with Scott Mason. Scott, thanks so much for being here. I am so privileged to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we jump in, and there's so much to talk about, Scott is a transformational coach for executives and entrepreneurs, and also a podcaster. Um, the podcast is called Purpose Highway. Indeed it is. That's all very true. Awesome. So there's, like I said, you know, this is relationships. And as a matrimonial lawyer, it is often this podcast is guiding on people who may be struggling in a relationship or thinking about go, uh, ending a relationship. And so much of what you do translates to relationships. Absolutely. And um, I know your focus career-wise is helping people uh, how to get out of feeling stuck and stagnant, and you are the go-to guy for that. Um, I, I have to say more, you know, before we jump in, um, you are probably the most positive person I have ever met, <laughs> and, and your energy is amazing, and Thank I, I want to talk about that. Um, I think maybe there's... One other person that exudes the positivity, and that's Christina. Uh, other than that, but I love your positivity. Thank is, you. Is awesome, and so I'm honored for you to be here. It is a pleasure, and thank you for the kind words. Look, positivity breeds positivity, and so I think we're going to get in a very virtuous circle here. I'd love to jump in um, to your background because I think who we are as people shapes where we are today. Absolutely. And so... If you can just, I know you told me you were you're born in England. Can you just go back and just kind of tell the audience, tell us, uh, you know, uh, your upbringing and how that has transformed who you are today? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I, as you just mentioned, was born in England. My mother was a British woman that was studying linguistics in graduate school in the late 60s. And she had an affair with a man who was studying law in London, um, from, uh, who was from Trinidad. And out of that affair came me. Now, in the late 60s... I love, I, you know, I did not even know that. Oh, and yeah. when we talked, you never said that. And I love, I, I love that. Yeah. Hey, you know, that song, Love Child, always spoke to me for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, they knew they couldn't keep me in that era. And so they put me up for adoption. A couple of African-Americans who were stationed in England at the time adopted me, flew back to the United States with me, and raised me in rural Kansas from there. And, and how old were you when you, got, when you were adopted? I was an infant, very young, under six months, I assume. I don't know the exact age. Got it. So they were really the only parents that I knew, and they did a great job of explaining the whole adoption process, and they made it um, seem as though it was an act of love, which it was. There were no traumas related, on my end at least, relating to feel like I'd, feeling like I uh, had somehow been mistreated by being adopted. Although, interestingly enough, a narrative did emerge about abandonment, um, despite what were really valiant efforts on my parents' part to make sure that that wasn't the message that was conveyed. Um, all things considered, they did as excellent of a job as is humanly possible to convey the true intent behind what happened with the adoption. Did you, have you ever, like, sought to reach out to your birth parents? Well, yes and no. I have, to some extent, sought to do that. However... The reality is, I have a sister who is also adopted. She was adopted um, here in the United States from a completely different biological lineage. And that adoption search did not end in the most constructive way. And I'm very aware of the fact that there are possibilities uh, that I may not be aware of. My need to find a parent may not necessarily coincide with 
the parents' interests or needs. Sure. So it's something, there are not, the hospital that I was born in and the agency that I was put up for adoption through do not exist anymore. The records are sparse. I know my biological mother's name, but I've never been able to track down any information about her. And the father, I have no information at all, except that he was, he's presumably an attorney in Trinidad. And so you, it's really interesting. You shared there were some abandonment issues and without, through no fault of your, your parents. Totally. And can you speak, does that, do you still carry that today or you've resolved those issues? Cause I, I, I can understand, you know, and I, it, I commend you for sharing that. Uh, cause that's really vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and here you're on the one hand, you're being like the truest love someone who has not birthed you and wants you in as your family. Absolutely. And now, but at the same time, you're dealing, you're struggling with your emotions and your feelings. Yeah. It actually goes as to something that is fundamental to my life mission. And that is the idea of examining the myths that we tell ourselves, our roles in them, and embracing the power of authorship over our future. So in terms of how I address- I love that, I gotta write that Oh, good, it's wonderful, I love it, thank you. (laughs) Interestingly enough, one of the most common stories in myth is of a child being abandoned and passed through a body of water. Actually, in the Bible, there's a very famous version of that with Moses, who was abandoned by his mother and literally put on water, where he was later discovered by the Egyptian princess. In Greek mythology, a number of heroes, the most notable of which was the hero Perseus, who killed Medusa the Gorgon, was abandoned and literally put in water. And through um, through that journey ultimately began to be in a position where their stepping into heroism was able to emerge. So part of my journey has been understanding that the feeling states that I might have had around that perceived abandonment had been rewritten before, could be rewritten, and not only that, but rewritten into something magnificent. I literally was abandoned and brought over a body of water to be raised. That's, that's really symbolic. That's funny. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, I view that process in terms of how I look back on it and think about it. I think I sort of see the passage over water in terms of my own psychological makeup and the story that I'm choosing to tell for myself as a subconscious act of transformation and reemergence. And so we're going to get, we'll get into the myths in, in a little bit yeah. more detail in, in a second. But I want to, so now you're in Kansas. And Absolutely. You're, you're being raised by uh, your parents. Um, so can you, can you share what, what was that like as a, a young boy? And I, I know you're biracial. Yes. You know, what's that Kansas. It's I know <laughs> I know we're in New York City now. Right. You know, what was that like in Kansas? And you're adopted no less. And I'm adopted by a family that was exclusively African American. And that raised challenges in a number of respects. First of all, adoption itself was not necessarily seen as a legitimate act by all of my extended family members. And so they didn't necessarily see my parents' act of love as uh, bringing true familial relations between them and my sister and myself. And so some family members treated us very much accordingly. In addition, Kansas is not, and especially at the time I was raised, was not the most racially diverse state, nor was it the most... 
wasn't the most progressive. Frankly, the town Topeka that I grew up in, you know, as an attorney, was the sure. um, right was the location of the major yeah. desegregation case in yeah. the history of this country, and there was not necessarily an acceptance by the larger African American community that my family operated in of someone who looked like me walking in their midst. There were issues related to my being LGBTQ. Uh, specifically thoughts about and, and statements made about that being part of whiteness as well as that's wild. Yeah. As well as then the, to be expected issues that one might face from the white community. I mean, I did have a high school teacher, my high school speech and debate teacher say to the entire class about me, uh, you can teach a monkey how to speak, but you can't teach him how to think. And when you say... Are you serious? I'm dead serious. And so it was a place where a community of my own just didn't exist. How old were you when that happened? That was, I believe, my junior or senior year of high school. How did you, how did you respond to that? I didn't. I probably just sort of laughed it sure. off or whatever. What was there to say? I'm That's not going to get into an argument with a sure. teacher about That's it. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So, in an act that was symbolic of how I felt there, I picked up jogging. There were corn and wheat fields by my house. And I would jog five, seven miles every day just to be alone and just to think and imagine a better future for myself. Some big, like, glitzy disco city in the sky. And I would be like the woman that sang Funky Town. Right. Move that to the town that was right for me. And where there was some energy. Totally. <laughs> and here I am. That is, wow. Um, and what was your relationship like with your sister? It was great. You know, like me, she was biracial. Although most people, when they look at me, don't point and say, that biracial guy. Right. My sister literally does look biracial. And so it was a little bit easier for her to blend into the various communities that were intersecting within our family and in our lives than it was for me. And you, you mentioned, you know, growing up um, and dealing with your homosexuality. Yeah. Can you speak to that? What was that like in Kansas? Because I'm guessing that was probably um, not as accepted as, where, you know, as the East Coast? Yes, especially at that time. Look, I was raised in a fire and brimstone-ish church. And perhaps the memory that would illustrate the feelings about it most starkly can be described in this brief story. The minister one day, as he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, which, by the way... Although I don't like the conclusions that they drew about that story, I always thought it was fascinating. I mean, the fire and the brimstone raining right. down and, and Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. You don't get much more dramatic sure. than that, I've got to say. So it was always an interesting story. I just didn't like the lessons that were being taught by that. And when he was talking about that, he asked everyone who was under 21 to go down to the main altar in the church. And he said... Uh, if you're a fornicator, in other words, if you are a woman that's having sex before marriage and you're about to have a baby out of wedlock, you are a sinner against God. You're damned to hell. If you are a homosexual, you're damned to hell. And once all of the young people went down to the altar, I knew that there was a woman who was going down to that altar who was pregnant and unmarried. She just had not told anyone yet. Mm -hmm. And he laid his hands on her and blessed her for not being pregnant and, you know, and not having sex before marriage, otherwise she'd be damned to hell. And he did the same thing with me. Now, of course, in the middle of our church, we weren't going to stand up at that age and say, nope, I, I'm gay, I'm pregnant without being married, and, and just let us be you know, condemned sure. by everyone. But it created this sense of pressure and ostracization However, it also created a profound drive in me, the drive to seek something better for myself, to say, I don't have to be here. I cannot and I will not live with this. Unfortunately, as a more tragic aside or more consequential aside, 
it also put within me a drive, an extreme drive to succeed against the odds. All the more so by virtue of the fact that my parents, having a working class background, my mom worked in a dog food factory, my father worked for the highway patrol. We weren't expected to do much anyway with our lives. So between that, that social class limited expectation and then the expectation or these statements that, oh, you're a sinner, oh, you're this, oh, you're that, all of these things saying, Scott, you're less, 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 activated within me a drive to become more, more, more. So perhaps there was a good side to it. Sure. Because otherwise I might just be sitting there content and not having without having had the opportunity to live the life that I've lived ever since. And so, so you decided, what was it? I know you went to law school. You came to Manhattan, went to law school. Columbia, Columbia Law. I did indeed. Why'd you, why'd you want to be a lawyer? Good question. I don't even know why. Yeah. <laughs> I actually do know why. It goes back to what I just told you, that desire to prove the world wrong. Good for you. I wanted to do something that didn't involve math, that represented power, authority, and indisputable accomplishment. And you don't leave Columbia Law School with people saying you're an idiot who can't do anything with your life. That's for sure. So what was that like? You, you leave Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, and you come to uh, the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan. Uh, what was that? Any culture shock? beyond what you can imagine. There was a hospital in the village called St. Vincent's that was here in New York City for yeah, a long time. Yeah, 12th, was it 12th, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after I'd been in law school for a week and started to meet people and realize the level of intellect that I was surrounded with, as well as the number of people who had had these incredibly accomplished careers before even stepping foot in law school. I remember sitting at a park across the street from there and thinking, I'm nothing. There are millions of people in the city. I will never be anything because I can't imagine having a place in the city where there's people like that walking around everywhere. In addition, culturally, growing up in a more working class Midwestern family that's rural and in a community that reflected that. There were many ways in which I did not get along. There was nothing I could do about. But there were other things that I could do to socially grease the wheels. For instance, I didn't go around at age 12 or 15 pulling Latin words out of my mouth right. around my peers. Or I didn't throw my intellectual capacity around. I didn't enter into day-to-day -day conversations, even in college with my friends, talking about obscure philosophers or great legal thinkers or other things. When I grew up, you spoke, presented, talked a certain way like that, you got beat up on the spot. And although I've never been one to shy away from a fight, I also didn't seek to bring one on myself for absolutely right. no reason. And so that sort of shock where people were going around talking about that, where people were going for spring break. I remember my first year, my spring break was going to Detroit to see my aunt. And I thought that was so exciting. It wasn't quite the same as my colleagues in law school who were going to Aspen or to Europe right. or South America. I couldn't comprehend. My mind was blown. Sure. And I, at the same time, I have to feel like there's a real large positive aspect because you were beginning to be able to be yourself more in oh, the yeah. metropolis of New York City. Absolutely. Look, the cultural exposure, as challenging as it was, was ultimately a good thing, as you said, because not just for the reasons of being in a place that was more diverse and where I felt I could be accepted and let me if there's any doubt that anyone has, make no mistake, law school for me was as much about going to classes as it was hanging out with all sorts of cool, fascinating sure. weirdos that I was meeting on the streets in New York, clubbing and gym, weightlifting, all that sort of stuff. So I made sure I took advantage of everything that New York City has to offer. But when you're exposed to a vastly different class milieu than that you're raised in and forced to adapt to it, you grow. 
You become a cultural broker in a way, and that's been a huge privilege of having started where I did and come through into my adulthood through the path that I took. So now, so now you graduate Columbia Law School. Yes, very impressive. Uh, and and what do you do next? I did know that I was interested in urban policy. I also had more of a public interest bent anyway, but the issues related to uh, large cities interested me. And hey, we are in the alpha city sure. in the world. So working for the city of New York was a natural for me. And I worked for many years as an attorney, then later uh, executive with the city of New York under various administrations. And so then at some point uh, you decide you no longer want to practice law. Yeah. What was that? Was there a defining moment, you know, in your career where you said, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm made to do other things. I'm made to do better things. I'm, this is not working for me. It's not stimulating me. It was a combination of things. Litigation where I started, I was immediately unhappy with and quickly moved into different sorts of, first into different sorts of litigation, then later into more of these managerial or in-house counsel or executive roles in various different, various different times. But about mid-career, I remember going to a career counselor and telling her I felt like a deflated raft that was in really rocky waters on the edge of the ocean and crashing against all the different rocks that were on the shore and at risk of sinking to the bottom because I felt so disconnected. Um, She indicated that there was a different sort of path that probably would be better for me and I began to pursue that. So that was the beginning of that journey. However, the dissatisfaction came to a head and ultimately converged into a decision to leave the city due to a combination of toxic work environments as well as just the sort of um, conflict that I had with a boss that ultimately made me feel as, and we mutually agreed to this, that it was time for me to move on. And I voluntarily left with an intense sense of relief, literally two weeks after my pension vested, I submitted my resignation. And it was both the best and the worst times of my life as any time of change, growth. That speaks to so many people listening because it's transformation right there. And, you know, so many people, they're stuck in a situation for so long they let inertia take over and they're just, they're like, Zombies going to work, zombies in a relationship, and you talk about like the relief you feel, and I, I share this with, I share this with uh, clients all the time because they think like, oh my god, my life it's going to be so horrible. Uh, I'm never going to meet anybody. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm always going to be miserable. The economic situation's not going to be, you know, what do you say to that person listening? You know, just describe, you know, the sense of relief. Cause that to me is a perfect way of describing it. I'll frame it by telling a brief story that captures how I felt before the I had an early morning meeting at 7 a.m. With, with some other people at one of the jobs that I had. And after that meeting was over, I went to get some breakfast. And so I stepped outside of the office building that I worked in and went to a deli across the street where they, you could get a bagel and some eggs or whatever. And as I stepped out of the office and I walked to the crosswalk to cross that street, as my foot stepped off the sidewalk and under the street, I turned to my right. And there was one of those metal 
coffee carts. Right. And inside that coffee cart was a man who was selling coffee for 75 cents a cup. And I'll never forget looking at him because he was handing one of those 75 cent cups of coffee to a woman that was taking it. And she was smiling. And as he was getting his 75 cents, he was smiling. And Arthur, inside, I'll never forget this. I felt nothing but rage and hate really? and envy directed at that man. How dare he, with that smile on his face, like what he was doing? How dare he enjoy his job? How dare he live a life I couldn't even imagine? That's where I was. I would look in the mirror some days, and inside, there wasn't a soul. There was just rage. There was inferno. Relief was the thought that I might not have to feel that way, that I could begin to recover a spirit, that I could be something other than that fire and brimstone from Sodom and Gomorrah inside. I didn't imagine what it would be like. I just knew that it couldn't be any worse. Yeah, uh, that's powerful stuff. Um, I'm just taking some notes because I want to come back to this. Um, and so you, you end up pivoting. And, yes. Um, did you go into, you know, motivational speaking at that time and, um, you know, consulting, or did you do something else before then? Yeah, there were a couple of pit stops along the way. After that, I worked for a nonprofit for a while. I thought maybe that would be better because the job was a little bit more purpose-driven, I've learned since that focusing on purpose without some larger contexts can lead itself to a different sort of unhappiness. But that's where I was at the time. Then later, I um, left that job and began my first entrepreneurial venture, which was being co-owner of a small manufacturing company that was looking, the existing owner was looking to grow and scale. So we became 50-50 owners and we were able to grow and scale that business significantly. However, it's one thing to grow and scale and to plan it and dream about it and want it to happen. It's another thing for it to be a reality. Wow. And I loved the growth and scaling process. And I understood from the prior jobs that I had more or less what it would take. And I was used to, as an attorney, putting in the work and the time that you need to in order for a business to transform and move to that level. My business partner, with all due respect, he loved the the planning and the scaling, he had the same dreams, but he'd never been through that process before. Right. And for him, the doing it, I believe, was the undoing of it. It just wasn't the way he wanted to live his life. And I respect him for being honest with me. We agreed that our visions for what the future would look like with that company were exactly the opposite. And so we respectfully split. And that's when I spent the time to begin to say, okay, this is going to be my fourth act. What is it that I really want it to look like? What do I really want to be? How can I take everything that I've experienced so far, everything that I've learned, and all of my gifts and transform that into something that could really have the sort of impact I believe I'm capable of and want to have on this planet? And hence began the journey that I've been on for the past few years. Awesome. And so, and so, and so you decided that's it from now on. I'm going to, um, you know, um, share my life lessons and help other people get to the other get to the other side so to speak too much of my career too many years of my life had been wasted arthur being concerned about achieving so that i could make up for deficits that i perceived that i had earlier in my life i had been given gifts and experiences, talents and interests, I believe for a reason. I had chosen to use them for purposes that were not necessarily service-driven. 
in a way, as I thought about it, entering into this phase of my life, I realized that I actually had been con con uh, committing a grave ethical crime. Because these things are meant to be shared with the world. They are meant to better others. So I felt a profound ethical duty to take what I'd been given, make something meaningful with it, to not have um, been offered bars of gold on a silver platter right. by the cosmos and then just thrown it into the trash. Right. And what was that like? You know, so now you, you have some, I understand it's a government job, you know, yeah. so um, you may not be earning as much as in the private sector, but you still have some comfort, there's some comfort zone being a lawyer and you know you're earning a paycheck and now you decide I'm going to go and be an entrepreneur. That has to be a scary thought. At the level I was at, first of all, it was beyond comfortable. I was very comfortable. And so there, the potential financial downside actually was consequential. Yes, it was scary, but another issue that had gradually come up and that I felt had felt frustrated about in all of the large organizations that I worked for, this came up with a nonprofit too, was that I felt because of their size or maybe because of the cultures, there wasn't really a space to be creative, to truly innovate, to say this is a vision for the world that I have. Now, let's make this happen and then to really go for it. And so I also increasingly over time felt more and more stifled. And money only matters so much so long as you got food on the table and you got a roof over your head and you got people in your life that care about you. And so money... I could have stayed and been miserable and all of that forever. That's, that's very true. But embracing the part of me that actually loves risk, I hadn't explored that. We only live once. Am I going to sit back when I die and say, I, I love risk. I just right. chose never to take it. I would have, again, felt like I was acting against my nature. Risk engagement and the willingness to do so is itself, I believe, a providential gift. I need to do something with it. That's great. So now, I know you're married. Yes. Um, your husband was, were you together with, what's his name? David. So David. Yes. Um, I'll never forget that name. It's my dad's name. <laughs> um, so was David, were you with David? You were with David at the time. The whole time. And so was he supportive yes. of your decision to go and jump in? He knew how unhappy I had been in these jobs. And actually, I would come home and tell him horror stories or express my frustrations for years. When I told him in particular that I was going to leave that nonprofit job that I had after the government work and go work in this manufacturing company, he, I remember we were on vacation and he said, I can't wait to, I gave the company that I worked for a lot of notice. I wanted to help them hire my replacement um, and provide them with a massive amount of support because the mission that they were working on really was valuable. I didn't want to throw, throw that down the drain or, it, or hurt them in any way. And, but, but that being said, during the months between when I told him I was leaving and when I left, he was saying things like, uh, January, when the transition date was, it can't come fast enough. That's great. Yeah. Do you think if he wasn't as supportive, that relationship would have, would have had, excuse me, the legs that it does now? It would not have. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really important for people to have support, you know, and to have a partner who's willing to make compromise yes. to make, uh, you know, for the happiness of uh, the other person in the relationship. And not only that, but have the confidence in them and the belief in them. He has repeatedly said he believes in my capabilities. He believes that I can do this. Now, it might take time. He understands that. But he never once, for instance, was like, well, what if you fail? Or what if you won't make money? Or what if, what if, what if? Not for a second. That's amazing. Yeah, that's an incredible blessing I, I have. So as part of your work... Um, as a coach, you talk about dispelling the myths. Yes. And there's a host of myths, which I want you to, and I'm sure you uh, want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, the first one that I want to talk about, and I know we've been talking a little bit about it now, 
in your journey, which I think is probably uh, what you share, there's flexibility and embracing change. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is very instrumental in personal relationships, not as well as business. Absolutely. The myth that there are a number of different myths, myth types that are toxic. And I could go into all of those at length, but going to that point, I will say that the myths that the underlying stories or the underlying narratives that we're telling ourselves, as well as the roles that we play within those stories, and we choose these roles a lot of times, ultimately dictate the outcomes. Are you telling yourself, for instance, and this is one I was guilty of, that the origin story of your life ultimately drives your future? Are you telling yourself that you are a victim or a bystander or a villain in your own life as well? If so, then those may lead you to be in a place where you feel either you can't change or it's not within your nature to change. The human capacity to change so much greater than any of us can imagine, even those like myself that embrace change. Think about our origin as a species. We started in a tiny location on a massive planet. Because of our adaptability, our willingness and ability to change, especially when times have been hard, we've spread around the entire world. One day we may, we may be colonizing other planets. We have these capacities within us, but we have to be willing to embrace them, especially if crisis comes, and change the stories and our roles in them to make it happen. It's, that's really profound. And, yeah, I think that speaks volumes to people who may feel like they're in a rut. Stop, stop playing the victim. I can't tell you how many, and I, I've done this myself. We're human beings, but how, I can't tell you how many times I, I hear about people talk, playing the victim. Um, and so kudos to you for helping people move past that. You think about where that story leads. So... A brief diversion. In Greek myths, there's a character named Iphigenia. Iphigenia was the daughter of one of the kings of Greece that was going to war against Troy. And the winds were not favoring the ships being able to leave. And so the, I believe it was the goddess Artemis, um, basically agreed to shift the winds if she received an appropriate sacrifice. And the sacrifice was this king's daughter, Iphigenia. Mm -hmm. Now, Iphigenia initially didn't know that she was going to be sacrificed, but as she approached the altar, she realized what was happening. And she agreed to it. In other words, she agreed to assume the role of the victim. She was sacrificed the winds shifted. The ships were able to leave to Troy. But think about it. That is an ominous beginning to the Trojan War. And it led to nothing but tragedy for everyone involved, for Troy, as well as the family who sacrificed her, as well as, honestly, most of the people that went to Greece or went to Troy to fight that war from Greece. All of them had, at a minimum, horrific journeys on the way back. Their greatest hero was lost. That's the danger of playing the victim. Sure. Not only do you lose, but everyone around you loses. Sometimes for generations to come. It's, it's, it's a tremendous lesson. And I realized, you know, it's so true that we are in control of our own destiny. I have also realized how much I did not pay attention in 11th grade <laughs> and uh, with Greek mythology. Because these are really, you know, and I, I remember, like, there's so many lessons in those in those stories, yeah. um, and there's I know there's other like. How do you work with your clients, um, or when you're speaking to a room full of people, because um, you're so powerful in your in your communication? How do you help, and like what are you saying to people to shed their myths? 
It's important to understand conceptually that we live within a body of myths that we write for ourselves and that we actually and that we play roles within these myths, as we've just mentioned, that can be toxic, but they also can be positive. Embracing the full positive potentials within these more constructive roles and being willing to let go of the myths is the first step that one needs to take. We then move from there into a process of rebuilding new myths, looking at things that may have actually helped you develop the, develop the bad myths um, are sometimes carried within them the seeds for something more positive, as well as uncovering gemstones from your past that may help you. I, I always call it like an internal archaeological dig to uncover the pieces of magnificence that are within you that you can later build into this towering colossus that can lead into a better future. Then, of course, it's important to develop a vision for where you want your life to go and do some planning to get there. Sure. You talk, we've, we talked the other day about finding uh, your inner charisma. Yes. And so... Um, you, I think you certainly have found yours. Um, can you tell me what you mean by that and, um, and share that to the audience and why that's important? Absolutely. I'll start by saying what charisma is not. Charisma is not endless, hyper-toxic, positive, BS rah-rah speak, standing up on a stage, jumping up and down with your fist in the air saying, you go, girl. That's not charisma. That's just making noise. It's not merely being entertaining. It's not just hand motions and a loud voice and, and distracting people. That doesn't stick. Charisma is connecting who and what you are, what you stand for on this planet, what your mission is, why you're here, understanding that, then taking your communication from a space in the brain that moves with intention, connecting it with a space in your heart that is willing to commit to whatever your message is from an emotional perspective, finding that middle ground, then releasing and letting it go without fear of what the world may say that's hostile and without fear of vulnerability too. If you have that, you could be quiet as a mouse, but so charismatic, people can't help but follow you. Wow. So, so you told a story before. Yes. About when you walked by that uh, the coffee vendor. Yes. And everybody in Manhattan, you know, knows about those guys. They're on yeah. every other block. And your anger. And when you told me, I was so, I was actually kind of surprised because I only know you as this ball of positive energy and you know i want to talk about dealing with the critics yes. okay you had a lot of anger and i think a lot of people this is a tough town to to exist in yes you know um no matter what you do lawyer teacher um you know child um and your positivity, a lot of people can internalize that and judge you. Yeah. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be extremely vulnerable here and admit when I first encountered you, I was like, wow, who is this? He's got so much positive energy. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got to know who you are, you know. I live in a world of, you know, by virtue of being a matrimonial lawyer, yeah. of negativity. And it's oftentimes us matrimonial lawyers are, you know, we have to dig deep to, you know, and uh, I think that's why Christine and I, uh, you know, uh, gel so well uh, is her uh, positive energy. How do you, like, there, there, there have to be critics out there looking at, you know, Scott Mason and the, the Scott Masons of the world, saying, you know, because it's very easy to criticize. Oh, yes, it you know, is. How do you deal with that? And what do you tell that person listening who may be struggling? You know, how do they deal with it? And I hope you, with, with me sharing that, it's me telling you, you know, I respect who you are and I've grown to uh, really 
um, I, don't if, I don't know if the word is adore, but I just, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm very impressed about uh, your story. Thank you. Well, I, that's, that's very, very much appreciated. The positivity and the negativity that you might receive. I understand and am very aware of negative feeling states that people might have about either my energy level or the way I present or project into the world. And I have had people nicely and not so nicely rib me about it. And I have had others be flatly hostile. At the end of the day, connection to, let me step back a bit, even further than what I was about to say. Thinking about the toxic myths and rebuilding mythology. The toxic myths that can hold us back include those that believe that in one way or another are, there's a type of myth called the social myth. And that myth is that our lives ultimately are or should be driven by the judgments and expectations of others. In my case, this idea that I needed to come to New York City and become a lawyer and be a success in right. order to reverse social expectations was a negative or a reactive response to living that myth inside. The idea that I should present in a certain way that people may or may not like irrespective of what's inside me is a manifestation of a social myth. When we examine these larger myths that we're living in, sometimes as we dislodge them, we're dislodging a whole set of limitations that we may not even realize are there. That's point number one. But point number two also goes as to what we discussed with regards to charisma a few minutes ago. When you understand who you are, what your message is, why you're here, it's about so much more that's bigger than any individual criticizing me. I'm here for a reason. I've got a mission. Are you mission critical? Are you mission neutral? Or are you trash? If you're trash, I'm sorry to tell you, I don't have time to do anything but put you in the wastebasket. Amen. It's, I think, that boiled down. It's like, screw what everybody else thinks. Yeah, but that does take practice. It's hard. It also means embracing the power of authorship over our myths. It's so, and I didn't even realize this until I was sitting here, that our stories are very similar. And I, I haven't shared this, but like, I never, I didn't wake up, and I don't know who does. Um, very few people say, I'm going to go to law school and be a matrimonial lawyer. Um, and my dad was a matrimonial uh, And that was my story for so wow, many years. Really? And I was the victim. And I literally had the cocktail party story. I'm going to law school. I'm just a matrimonial lawyer because my parents made me go because I wanted to be an actor. And until I was able to let go of that story, yeah. you know, was I able to, first of all, appreciate what I got, which was, you know, a degree that a lot of people don't have the ability to have. Totally. But more importantly, I was able to appreciate my parents and my dad. And I also became a better person and a, a better matrimonial lawyer. You know, I had to recreate that whole story. Yeah. And uh, so thank you for sharing your journey because I've kind of, I got to look like chills here. Um, you know, experience and having this realization. Yeah. Actually, thank you for sharing because that's the sort of story that is inspiring to someone like me. It fuels my positive fire. You just added some, you've added some matches to something that was already burning away awesome. like crazy. So you're a podcaster. Yes. And there's a lot of everybody podcasts. Yes. Including myself, you yeah. know. But and not all are as good as yours. Let's I be real about that. that. So everybody has a reason why they, they do this. Yeah. What was your reason for uh, starting your podcast? Multiple. First of all, anything involving oral communication I enjoy, and obviously 
podcast involves oral communication. Secondly, as I was in my prior um, iteration of my career, the company that I co-owned, in order to bring in business, I networked a lot. And over and over, when I would network with people, I would hear, you should be podcasting, you should be podcasting. I remember I was part of a B&I group, and people began to, I always had the most number of one-on-ones. And after a while, people began to say, especially new members, oh, everyone says the one-on-one that you have to have is with Scott Mason. And someone said, well, because you ask a lot of questions, you're genuinely curious and you genuinely care and people feel that. And I actually do care. It's a great opportunity if one chooses to leverage it to learn, to explore, to be able to develop connections with people that you might not have otherwise, or more importantly over time, to deliver your message, especially as you do more and more of it and you're able to, as you, by the way, have very effectively done even during this interview, bring out your own personality through the medium. And, and so going back to the criticism. Yeah. Because it's very vulnerable. Yes. And Train and Christina and Corey and Dean, those are the guys who helped me do this and very instrumental in uh, uh, making this successful. Um, they laugh because I literally, I'm on a, I'm on a 24-hour uh, hamster wheel of being extremely positive, and this is really amazing for uh, the public to gain information and learn from other people's journey and mistakes and success to what the hell am I doing? Why the hell am I wasting my time doing this? I am so busy as it is. This takes so much time. How do you keep that in check? Because we were talking offline right before we started about, you know, uh, as you have snowballed into your success, the negativity just keeps coming. Right. And I remembered, you know, the the team that helps me, they kept saying, you will see. You better have a thick skin for this. Um because there's going to be a lot of comments. Yes. And how do you, um, there's, I equate this to people who are going through a divorce and they're always calling me. Well, you know, my spouse, uh, my friend's spouse pays 20000 or this is what happens. And, the, and everybody is always quick to talk about someone else's journey. Yeah. And how do you, how do you stay focused and how do you tell the person out there to stay focused on being true to themselves? Some of it involves really doing things like writing down what your vision or your mission is for yourself, writing out a plan and then putting into place some sort of accountability system. Coaches are great for that, but it can be your spouse or your friend or whatever that is committed to you and that you ask to commit to making sure that you're remaining focused. I will also say one thing that I'm a big believer in is once you understand where you're going, what your mission is, why you're doing it, do a declaration of freedom. It might be in the case of a podcaster where you're viewing this as an expression of yourself as a free, independent entity in the universe to say, write down, what am I, what is this about? I am going to declare my independence from everything that held me back from doing this and truly lean into it and give yourself that power. Is the act of writing itself going to change anything? Maybe or maybe not, but it does transform your mind. It does put something there that you have committed to. And I believe that that can have a tremendously positive reaction, particularly if you share that with people that will, again, hold you accountable to it. Yeah, I, I also think that when you are starting to self-doubt, you pull out that piece of paper. Absolutely. You know, it's just like if you're struggling with weight loss. Yeah. You know? Um, Absolutely. And we can in, insert any struggle here. It's, yeah. it's a mental reminder. Um, and it's really great advice. You live, you're living in Manhattan, and you've been together for 24 years with yes. David. Yes, um, what's that like, uh, like for you guys, you know, the last two years has not been easy for anybody yeah. except maybe, you know, Disney plus and Netflix. <laughs> um, <And> Zoom. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
how are you guys? A lot of relationships cratered, you know, in these times. Uh, what can you tell somebody listening who may be struggling um, and wants, who's looking for help? How did you guys, you know, get to the other side? I'll preface that by saying, because it's really relevant to this particular question, David and I, for 23 of our 24 years, including the past two years, have lived together in a 500-square-foot studio apartment. Amazing. So it can be done. We cannot escape. I always joke, if David is secretly a serial killer or a drug dealer or something, it's impossible. I'll figure it out. There's no right. place for him to hide the bodies of the drugs. There's no space at all. <laughs> Believe it or not, that has given us an advantage because it forces us to communicate. We cannot run. We cannot hide. We cannot avoid it. It's not like I can go into another room and sleep you know, with the door shut or stomp into the living room and, and turn on the TV and, and shut them out. The TV is 20 feet away from me at most, no matter where I am. And so I would say, in a way, think about these, again, unless you're in an abusive relationship, which I very much want to qualify, but if it's a relationship where the stress of being together ultimately has been taxing the relationship, understand that it is also an opportunity to build those communication skills. We have the conversations that are difficult up front. There is a mantra that my husband said within our first six months together that we still throw back and forth all the time and we laugh about, which is, you're you, I'm me. And we understand that when we have our conversations. That and the fact that we can't escape from that person being ourselves, you know, themselves, is, has been our secret. Years ago right. when I was in India... We drove in the city of Chennai by a lengthy encampment that bordered the Indian Ocean. And in it, there were thousands of quote-unquote homes that were really tents that probably weren't much taller than this table, and they weren't much wider than the space between you and me. And people, it looked like least two people, maybe even more if you count children, were living in each of those tents. Mm. 500 square feet is small. People are doing it in tents on the Indian Ocean with less space than that. Right. We are capable of doing more than we believe is possible. That's great. I, yeah, I think communication is so key. And that's uh, so many relationships end up failing because people... Yeah refuse to communicate, they avoid, and then something happens, you end up fighting about something so uh, irrelevant and unimportant. So kudos to you guys. Um, so if somebody is looking to connect with you and get some of that positive energy and transform, how do they reach you? Go find me on LinkedIn, smason1, or on Instagram, s.scott underscore Mason. My website is under construction right now, so that probably wouldn't be the smartest place to take people to. But we all know in this day and age, LinkedIn serves as an unofficial homepage for everybody anyway. And I put out content daily that hopefully brings more positivity in the world and most importantly, enlightenment. Well, thank you for your positivity. Thank you. Um, I have one last question. Yeah. And I ask every guest. Uh, I'm a bit of a sneaker guy. And so my question to you is, um, what's your favorite sneaker if you have one? Wow, you're talking a work boots or motorcycle boots sort of guy here. Awesome. I, I will say probably, and I can't wear them, but I love the old school Converse sort of 1950s nice. style babies. Yeah. yeah, Chuck Taylors. Yeah, yeah. Is that Amazing. what they're called? Yeah. 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 What about yeah. you? You've got to tell me. No. I am a, I'm a Jordan guy. Ah. I like the retro ones, the first... Yeah. But uh, I don't discriminate. I just, I enjoy it, you know. And what's very cool for me is and embracing one of the interesting parts of the a pandemic is really breaking down of the, the stigmas and the requirements of what is expected of society about 
dressing. And as someone who has yo-yoed, I've always yo-yoed and struggled with my weight. And I certainly, it, the pandemic is a microcosm of that for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I got very, uh, I got uh, much more active and healthy in the beginning of the pandemic. And then I went the complete opposite <sighs> way. Um, and, but I've been able to, uh, you know, I'm sitting here wearing sneakers today in the office. I, I never did this before, you know, and so uh, to me, it's, it's somewhat liberating. Ain't it, though? It's awesome. It's a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for coming. This thank has been you. really great. And keep doing, uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing the amazing work, too. Awesome. Thanks.